Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. Thank you all for your continued shares and likes and support for the podcast. I would ask all of you that do listen regularly, if you wouldn't mind sharing it on Facebook or Twitter for me, that would be a great help. Um, I'm here in London today with uh, someone I've known for about a decade on and off. Now, we always used to meet once a year in Canada, big advertising festival. She is a legendary TV producer and consultant who has worked in and lived all over the world and worked across uh, the top agencies, ad agencies in the in, in the world too. And I think maybe, have you done some film work as well? Uh, I have a little bit. A little bit of film work. I'm welcoming to the podcast Francesca Wilkinson. How are you? Hello, Sean. Who recently was uh, doing all of the TV work for Wilkinson Sword. I was indeed. And you used to pretend that you owned the company. <laughs> no, I never <laughs> pretended. I just never denied it if somebody suggested that maybe it was part of the family. You're not the Wilkinson Sword heiress. No, no. unfortunately. But you have an interesting background. You lived all over the world when you were younger. I did. What was your upbringing? Where were you born and all that? Uh, I was actually born in London. Uh, my father was with the United Nations. so Doing what? Uh, working for UNESCO, visual aids and mass media communications. Mm. So I ended up growing up in West Africa and Liberia. In wow. North Africa and Egypt, uh, South Pacific, Fiji. So start with some of these. Where was the, your young, your earliest memory of living? Egypt. In Cairo? In Cairo. We lived in Cairo and uh, also in a small town called Manouf, which was wow. outside of Cairo, which was the main United Nations base. Uh, and then I was sent to boarding school at quite a young age oh. in Alexandria, oh. which was uh, interesting. Were you an only child? I was indeed, yes. So the, one of the things I keep saying is the amount of people, and it's not by it's by chance that I talk to on this show who are only children or people who feel like they were only children. It's ma- amazing. Mm. Because I think a lot of people who are only children, because they grew up around adults, they're listening to adult conversations and adult themes and their brain, instead of like I'm playing with my Tonka truck and my with my brother or sister over there. You're sort of sitting around playing in your own, but you're, you're, you're taking in a lot. Yeah, you're absorbing the adults. Yeah. So I suppose it does tend to make you uh, more grown up more quickly. Yeah, um, and independent. Yes, and I think also if you travel a lot, some people say, you know, children traveling is not a good idea, but it is. And, and you learn different cultures and languages and all the rest of it. My mother is, um, is was Swiss, so sort of partly Italian, partly German, but grew up in the French part. So my mm. mother and I spoke French. And my father and I spoke in English, so right. it was interesting. And what was it like then in boarding school in Alexandria? Was it a religious school? Or no, 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 no. Was it I was very, very young. It was only because to live out in the in the village in Manouf, you had there was a lot of um, problems for kids with diseases and mm. what have you. So it was easier for me to be in a boarding school in Alexandria. No, the school I went to was actually sort of for all the princes and, yeah. and everything else. Someday and that, your prince will come. Well, exactly. No, I remember my father actually saying to me one day that uh, he'd got a phone call from the headmistress because I had been having a conversation with some of the kids and they were saying they were princes. And I said, well, I'm a princess, you know. Yeah. And they said, no, you're not. I'm daddy's said, princess. Well, exactly. <laughs> that was exactly it. Yeah. My father always called me princess. Yeah. And apparently I hit this little boy on his nose. Oh. To prove the point, I was a princess. And you were in there. You were in that school for how long? Till what age? Sort of on and off, I suppose, till I was about six. Okay, and then I was very young. <laughs> uh, then we were evacuated from Egypt. 
because of the Suez. Suez crisis. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, in fact, the United Nations were the last people to be evacuated. Right. So I do remember that as a child. Was that an urgent fleet flight or? Yeah, I was apparently playing with the chief of police's daughter at the time of the um, issues, and my father had to come and collect me. And then we were the last out. I remember being in a big bus with my mother and all the other children and parents and families, apart from my father, who was in a car following the bus, which then broke down. And mm. All sorts of issues happened. Where were you fleeing to? We were, fly- we were going down to Alexandria to be evacuated on, on a, a big American warship, oh, yeah, which yeah. we were. It was going to, well, we were going to Lebanon, to Beirut, and halfway across from the American warship, we had to transfer ships mid-ocean onto a Lebanese ship. And I can tell you that was horrendous. To this day, I have a fear of any walking on little bridges with ropes and yeah, yeah. what have you. And what did, So what happened after that then? Did you leave Egypt for good then? Or? Yes. Um, we, uh, well, we stayed in Beirut for a while. Then I think we were in Paris because the UNESCO headquarters are in Paris. And then we'd come back to London. Mm. Um, so were you constantly changing schools and having to make new friends? Yeah. And yeah. How did you find that? You just, just get used it, to it, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think in the end I've been to about 17 different schools and wow. maybe, that's not counting universities and stuff. And were you good at school? Were you smart? Yes, I mean, I didn't have any issues. Mm. I mean, at the end, I suppose the hardest time would have been in Fiji because I went there when I was about 13, 14, and right. at that time Fiji followed the New Zealand curriculum. They were teaching us things like Maori history. Well, I'd never even heard of a Maori. Good to know, though. Let alone... Yeah, exactly. So, Did you like uh, Fiji? I did. They're lovely, aren't they? Yeah, no, Fiji is fabulous. No, I loved it. I was there for a couple of years. Mm. But, of course, from a schooling point of view, it was the first time I was going from, like, a very tiny private boarding school to its grammar school. So that was terrifying. Boys and girls, just thousands of people so it really was scary and my education suffered massively <laughs> were you quite independent even at that age you had to yeah. make your own sort of way yeah. in the world a little bit because you were well my parents were divorced and okay so, so they when you were young when they divorced right? uh, yeah about 11 okay yeah um, but so coming back from Fiji I then had to learn basically catch up about four years of UK mm. education mm. in like two, so. And you still feel your home is always London, yeah? Uh, yeah, for me, I, I love London. And what did you do then? Did you go to college here? Uh, no, uh, well, I did. I went to, I'd, I'd always, I'd studied drama and loved acting and wanted to go to drama school, which is what I did. So I was one of the youngest people to get into drama school. I think I was just 17. Um, I went to Bel Air's in Guildford. Was the dream to be a... Famous actress. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd always loved drama. Mm. And I'd studied it all my life. I just wanted to be an actress, yeah. But then various things happened, and then I also decided I didn't like being on stage or, you know, kind of in front of the camera. So, and at the same time, a lot of family things So what, what happened with that, that you wanted to be an actress? Well, my mother, my mother got sick, and right. uh, I decided to quit. And at that time, anyway... Long story. <laughs> um, I kind of decided to go independent from both parents. So I worked for a couple of years. Because the, the thing I was good at was art and drama. So mm. when I decided to skip on drama, I went to art school to do theatre design, which okay. kind of linked it. So I was about 19. 
studied it. When and you were, we were totally cut from your parents. You were living your own lifestyle. What was it yeah. like? Was it that was what was that the sixties? Uh, late late sixties. So what was it like 70. living around with you? Were you, Being got, were you going mad? <laughs> well, it just seemed better to be independent than it was to be with parents arguing. Mind you, they were both living their own lives. So right. I had on the one side my father being very artistic and doing his bohemian thing, and then my mother married to the ambassador and a minister of the government, and da 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 mm. well, we knew. So the acting bug left you, and you just were focusing then behind camera yeah. or set designs and stuff like that. Did you like all Theater that? design, yeah, I loved it. But yeah. then I decided that there were lots of very talented people in it, and there wasn't any money. Mm. And so I kind of decided graphics and commercial art had more money. So when I... After the foundation, I got into the London College of Printing to do typography, of all things. Mm. Don't get typographers anymore. No, you don't. You don't. I hadn't actually... I, I thought I was going in for graphics, but I got into typography. Into that. So you're drifting slowly yes. towards the ad business. <laughs> yeah. So I then switched to graphics, right. went to London, Goldsmiths, London University. And in doing the graphics in my last year, we were doing film and television stuff. So when I left there, in the holidays, I'd always worked. And I was doing a lot of work with ad agencies, uh, just to make ends meet. I'd worked a lot at McCann's. Mm -hmm. And then at that time, Barry Day was the creative director. So I would asked if I could have a job. And he said, well, come along. And there was a couple of us that they took on as sort of interns to be creatives. Mm -hmm. Paint the picture. We're in the... We're in the midst of a lot of uh, firings in America for indiscretion and all that kind of stuff. It's the, the whole Me Too thing is catching up on the ad business finally. What was it like back in the 70s in an ad agency? Was it, Did you come across much? <laughs> Not really. No? I mean... Where do you stand on that whole thing? Are you kind of... Well, the, the trouble is, I think the whole thing has gone ludicrous. I mean, it's got to the point now where if somebody gives you a compliment, you just you, anybody can turn around and say, you know, this is um, not appropriate. Yeah. And you just think, well, this is crazy. There's always been pressure. I mean, if you think the whole casting couch thing mm. has been going since the beginning of the film yeah. industry, yeah. since, since years, whenever. Yeah. So I don't know why everybody's suddenly so surprised. I think if there are pressures put on people... I was always in a situation where I felt that I was in control. I mean, if somebody hit mm. on me that I didn't like, I would either tell them where to go or right. I would, you know, you would do something. Mm. You could avoid that, mm. I think. Now, I can imagine if you're a, a frail person, then maybe you're, you feel obliged or whatever. It's, it's a very difficult one because I think a lot, I don't like this me too. Mm. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I think... You know, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and, and saying anybody and everything. And, and there's always this innuendo without anybody specifically... Saying anything, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a huge difference between sort of aggressive rape or anything like yeah. that compared to somebody... I mean, if somebody puts a hand on your knee, yeah. fine, you yeah. hit the hand, yeah. you know, you yeah. move away. I don't yeah. see why you should actually... I think also there's... What's, what, for, certainly from a male point of view, what's being missed is you, as a man, you know when you're being creepy. You know what I mean? You know when you're pushing it yeah. into that area and you know when you're miss. Well, I suppose the approach. danger, but there, there will always be people who can't take no for an answer. Yeah. So let's put it this way. If you fancy somebody and mm. they're pushing it, you don't mind. But right. if you don't fancy them and they're pushing it, you do mind. Yeah. That person may, may read the wrong signal. Sometimes mm. you get people who are so arrogant, they just assume. Harvey that, Weinstein, etc. Yeah. Well, yes. But, and with power, yeah. 
Ugly men with power. Ugly men with power. But then, you know, look at half the women, that are, not half the women, but there are many women you can look at and you can see that a lot of them are very attractive women with apparently quite ugly men. Mm. They could have wonderful personalities, yes. but it's that classic, you know. Exactly. They're not usually poor people. Yeah. The way things are going now makes out that women are just so incompetent, they're incapable of looking after themselves or saying no to somebody mm. who hits on them. And there's also a side of it which is just having to tread so carefully that things like fun and things like banter and stuff like that, you just got to watch what you say because you could, some snowflake somewhere could just get all offended. I mean, I, I run into this a bit with my mouth in the sense that I'm kind of a bit of a joker and I say sort of, I, I tease people, but I don't mean ever to be unkind. But sometimes people, if they want to, can take really bad offense at one of my, you know, I've had to be much more careful <laughs> when I chat to people. Yeah, I mean... The problem with, with this kind of Me Too and the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, I mean, yes, he, he seems to have been a particularly obnoxious mm. person that nobody seemed to like, and he obviously abused his situation. However, you know, when somebody sort of on the Me Too suddenly says, well, you know, he did it twice, you think, well, hang on, if you didn't like it the first time, how yeah. how can it happen twice? Yeah. So, And then you think, well, did it help your career? Did it not help your career? And... You know, you just wonder about all these things. What was it like in the ad industry? In the, well, fun the enough, there was a lot going on in the ad industry. I mean, I wasn't part of the whole 60s bit. I was a bit sort of backwards in that because of the Italian upbringing is mm. completely different to the, the kind of upbringing you would have if you were in London in the 60s. Mm. So, I mean, I was always in Italy and then coming and being independent, I was 18 and, well, 17, 18. And then by the time I'd got to art school, yeah, it was everything was more the sort of the not exactly hippie, but it was everybody could do whatever they wanted all the time. So yeah. there wasn't this thing, or I don't know, it was everything was much more open. You could go out with who you like, when you like, how you like. You know, people smoked dope, people did a lot of drugs, mm. but not to the sense that it was. Or maybe I was protected from it. I don't know. But it, it wasn't sort of that people... you went, There weren't orgies and that whole drug thing. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it was just different. Do you look back on that time as a happy time of your life? It certainly wasn't unhappy. Yeah. It was yeah. an interesting was, time. Yeah. So when you got into the ad business, did you know this is what I'm going to do now? You enjoyed it? Well, it was interesting because, as I said, once I got this opportunity at McCann's, having talked with... Um, Andy Rourke and I'd said I really enjoyed film and he said well you're far better off switching to a production company and working in film rather than staying in an ad agency mm. uh, and I thought he was right and then I talked to a few people I'd wanted to direct wow. I'd always wanted to direct and I talked to a few people and they said never will we have any women directors and etc etc mm. oh it really was very male so like not a chance of directing so how did you take that? Did you go, I, you sound well, like the sort of woman who go, I'll show you. and go. Well, yes, but, you but you've got to get the job. And in those days, you had to become part of a union, the ACTT, ah, and you couldn't get a job without the card, and you couldn't yeah, get the card without the job. job. Yeah. So you so, were a bit stymied. So well, I left McCann's. From McCann's, I ended up working with Viz News and Reuters, and because I was the only woman there, I was made fashion editor. Wow. <laughs> which was quite fun. And also on the news side, we, I had to read all the papers every day and then syndicate stories or find stories that we could do a 15-minute segment for Viz News that would go to Reuters. Mm. 
I did that for a so while. So that's journalism. I did. I got an NUJ card. I should have okay. kept it. Then after that, I was asked to illustrate a book on how television works, which I did. And that was for the BBC. And then eventually, I was talking to various headhunters. They sort of said to me, well, have you ever thought about working in an advertising agency as a producer or as a in production? You said, well, they told me that wasn't going to work. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. And so uh, they put me up for a job where I went in as a production assistant in the TV department. Very male. But uh, after that, I got headhunted to go to oh, Lansdowne. Lansdowne, which was part of JWT. They just separated. So I worked with a fabulous creative guy, Tony Abraham. I went in as their producer and head of TV of one. But it was good. And it kind of went on from there. Basically, just for people who don't know what the TV production side is, you were, you're, you're basically in charge of once an ad has been approved, a commercial script has been approved, it then becomes your responsibility to get it made, right? Yeah. Get quotes from directors, you work out how much the whole budget's going to be, where you're going to shoot it, you go on recce's to work out how to film it if it's an ad, ad stuff. I think the great thing about advertising then, so I was lucky to get into it, if you like, at the end of the 70s, a lot of the people who were in advertising came from all kinds of walks of life. Mm. They had come in from many different aspects. So yeah. they had eclectic. so much to offer as opposed to nowadays, you know, unfortunately you have courses for advertising specifically. So people live, eat and breathe advertising. And therefore I do feel sometimes they have far less to bring into it. Yeah because they they are limited by what their own conception yeah. of it is, yeah. as opposed to somebody coming in from something completely different mm. will have a completely different perspective. And, mm. and it's like when you say you can't do something, they'll go, well, why? There were lots of very interesting people and, and very talented people, and, and it was breaking ground, a bit like the music industry. Yeah. I mean, the, the music we had in the also 60s, 70s, time, yeah. everything Punk. was so yeah. different. And you had sort of fantastic opportunities and working with really talented directors and, mm. and people. Uh, so all this time you were living in London? I was living in and London. And did you get married or were you...? Uh, I got married in... Yes. I got married in uh, 81. Right. 81, so early 80s. Yeah. My husband was not in the business, which in a way was quite good because... Uh, talking shop all the time. No, and also it was very good to have somebody who's outside of that whole mm. thing. If, if I found, if I was sort of stressed or whatever and I'd come home and if, I'd find him following me up and down the floor. Then I realised I was walking up and down, pacing. <laughs> but uh, no, so he kind of kept the sanity and everything. Because yeah. um, by then I was, I'd been to FCB, which I loved. Uh, and then I was brought into Grey, became head of TV mm-hmm. and a board director. Um, I think I was one of the first women board directors. You work 18 hours a day, you know, you really do work hard. You play, I mean, it's like the long lunches, the, the, mm. the, you know, which is legendary. But on the other hand, yes, we did have long lunches and yes, we did drink and, and all the rest of it. However, we, you would go back to the office and you would continue working and mm. you would continue working 
till very Midnight, late at whatever, night yeah. or whatever, whatever was necessary. So you kind of played hard, worked hard. Mm. In terms of how the industry has changed now, what I notice is a lot of the fun element has gone out, which people might think of as irresponsible. But on the other hand, you know, we did work hard. We did good creative work. Everything now I find is planned to death. Research to death, planned to death. Research to death, planned to death. I mean, it's, you know, many of the big advertising campaigns would never have succeeded had they gone through the the process that we have now. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it, that it's so safe? Because I I was often saying that if you think about it, I can't think of an ad campaign that would say very risque, brave, avant-garde, different, scary, risky, that failed and in the process brought a brand down badly you know i mean like think of the old benetton ads where they were showing aids patients and kissing yeah well that did them in fact that worked for their benefit the fact they got banned they got more publicity i mean yet everyone's so you know over analyzing every show this is the problem now if you've got everybody working in it and they all live eat and breathe advertising or they live eat and breathe media or they live eat and breathe they limit what they have to offer simply yeah. because that's all they can see. Mm-hmm. And so the same applies to the creatives because unless the creatives are allowed to be creative, they can't. And, and equally, I think now the colleges, they have colleges for creative directors, they have mm. colleges for this, colleges for that. So again... They're not made, really. They're, they're, they're born. The great they, yes, but so all you're doing is, is creating clones who want to be in a particular industry. Yeah. And I think that would apply probably to anything. I mean, to, to a chef, to whatever. If, yeah. if you're taught, that's all you can do. You're not taught to think for yourself or be creative or mm. accidents. You know, that's, that's the beauty of creativity is often it's an accident. Mm. It's knowing when something is an accident and knowing that, ah, my God, that works. You know, when you're filming, these things happen. Something goes wrong and you think, wow. You know, you've never thought of that, but let's go with it, and mm. it and it can work, and that's that's the beauty. Whereas nowadays, you'll probably find if something happened as an accident, they go, "No, we can't do that because I don't know health and safety or this or yeah. that." There will be some reason why it cannot be done. Everybody's second guessing everything, so mm. you have less opportunity for creativity. Mm. Just- and in the production business, you know, as you said, like some shoots I was on, you come up with an idea that's completely off script, and you go and make it, and it might be the whole thing that. Yeah. Brought the whole thing to life in a completely well, different way, the, and then I, someone had to sell it to the client later, and they'd go with it. Well, the well, thing is, part, now for part of the politically correct thing also is, and also part of the machinery of advertising and the whole industry is, of course, it's become a very lucrative business mm. for that sort of money. And so you have a situation now where the money has almost taken over the creativity. The end result, though, is that you think, well, if the money's taken over the creativity, then and it doesn't really work at the end of the day like it could have done, mm. then did you not waste your money in the first place? Yeah. It's yeah. it's a very hard one. And and I think also agencies have kind of shot themselves in the foot a bit. Clients don't trust them anymore. Mm. They tried to make a lot. Well, they've always made money, but they started trying to make even more money. Uh, and there was a, a history of, you know, maybe not, of course, in any of the jobs you worked on, but... <laughs> There was a history of backhanders and stuff going on and kickbacks from production companies to get jobs. I mean, that was certainly in Ireland when I was got very I noticeable. Think, and it happened in New York, I think, a few years ago. Yeah, no, no, I think, I, think, I think that did happen mm. a lot in the UK from, from what I gather. I mean, to be honest, I never had that situation. I mean, I was lucky I never had that situation. Mm. But I, I know that it did happen because I've heard that from other people. 
Not so much backhanders from, I think, production companies to agencies, but probably things like, you know, lots of lunches or lots of yeah, taking out the, or entertaining yeah, yeah. or whatever. But you've got to remember also at that time, a lot of the entertaining was business, mm. meaning a lot of work was done during, during those times. So it's, yeah. it's a thin line between... It was much better fun. It was much more Having fun. Having an eating in a nice restaurant with wine for four hours than sitting in a boardroom. This is true, but, salty but you know, if at the end eggs. of the day you didn't come up with the goods, yeah, you were then, fired, then right? you know, you, you had to pay. So mm. even though you say it was more fun, yes, but if you, you still had to come up with the goods. And if you mm. didn't, for a the while. The technology then starts coming into play where it starts eating your lunch a bit as well, right? And the production co- company side of things, because suddenly... Technology is so cheap, people can get hold of stuff, people can make things cheaper. Not always as good. Well, it opens up so many possibilities Mm. because everything is now so instant. You can do a lot of wonderful things, which you couldn't do before. However, you now have a completely different situation where everybody seems to think that anything now shot on a telephone or this or that is fine and it's going to work and it's cheap. And you can shoot lots of it, so it must be okay at the mm. end. The danger there is that a lot of the the good ideas, people are no longer concentrating on finding a good idea. If you have a good idea, it'll work, whether it's on film, whether it's on digital, whether it's on phone mm. or whatever. Yeah. You need an idea. Mm. And I think what's happening now is it's a bit like kids in a toy shop. The clients are like in a toy shop. We can have anything anywhere. Yeah. Whatever we want. At whatever price. And at what, yeah. And it's going to be cheap because we can have lots of it mm. and therefore it's good. And it isn't necessarily good. Mm. So they have to be more discerning about things. And I think agencies also shot themselves in the foot by making the whole digital thing as if it's some kind of, you need to be a special type of person to yeah. understand the mechanics. Made, and it, and the whole thing is, yeah. is so complicated and nobody really understands mm. it. And, and which personally I think is rubbish is yeah bullshit i would say mm. because it's the same like throwing in the old days throwing loads of money at a product or a um, problem, yeah. yeah yeah is not gonna make it any better mm. how long did you stay at um grade and that was your main chunk of your career right in i suppose yeah well as head of tv there yeah i was there i don't know mm, six years right maybe yeah and what was next then after that, um, my husband, who was German, his father asked him to come in and run his family business. Okay. So I moved to Germany, oh. to Munich with him. What uh, was it like living in Munich? Being buried alive. Really? <laughs> <laughs> quite yeah, Munich, Munich is beautiful. I'd, so you're being a dutiful wife over there. It's not really your speed. No, it wasn't. No. So, but I thought I'd get a job there because Munich was well known for the film business. Mm-hmm. What I hadn't realised is that advertising was really in Hamburg and Frankfurt. So when I got there, people were offering me jobs like head of TV in oh, right, Frankfurt right. or yeah. Hamburg, and I didn't want to be a weekend wife. I didn't know in Germany everybody does that. Everybody mm. is on yeah. a plane, on a train. They live in one place and work they commute somewhere else. for hours. Yeah. yeah. So I wasn't interested. So I tried getting work in advertising in Munich. And basically their attitude was, well, if you were so good at what you did over there, why did you come over here? Mm. So that didn't work. Um, anyway, cut a long story short, eventually the creative director of Grey Dusseldorf found out I was in Munich and they had a very big shoot to do for Slimfast. 
they had hired Roger Vadim's mm. wife to be the star of this mm-hmm. ad. And she'd said she'd only do it on condition Roger Vadim directed. So Gray, well, Charles Green at Gray found out I was in Munich. So he rang me and said, would I produce, produce with Vadim? With Vadim, Ooh, yes, cool. absolutely. So was he uh, like? Wonderful. Right. Charming, wonderful, professional, and, yeah. not a prima donna, mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. I ended up doing three commercials with him. And I remember once asking him, how come, because you know he was married to uh, Bardo, yeah. then he was married to Jane Fonda, then he was married to Catherine Deneuve. And I said to him once, I He's said, a greedy. how come, you know, how did you manage to marry yeah. such beautiful and intelligent women? And he looked at me with a sort of wry smile. He said, I know when to walk away. <laughs> and what do you mean by that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I think he was one of these people that I don't think would ever speak badly of anybody. And in fact, of all his right. wives, apparently, he stayed friends with, apart from Catherine Deneau. Mm. They were not on particularly good she's terms. She's tricky, I'd say. Though they, had a, uh, they have a son together, right. I think Christian. But no, to work with, he was he was charming. Couldn't have been more helpful and not a prima donna. Didn't mm. want first class mm. everywhere or anything like that. No, amazing. But that started me working with um, Grey Dusseldorf, which is like an hour from Munich on a big plane. And so I realised that this time I decided I'd had enough of Munich and might move back to London, which is what I did. I moved was back your to... marriage under strain? Yes, okay. yes. So I decided to leave. And worked out that a big plane from London to Dusseldorf was the same as yeah, a big plane from Munich, Munich to Dusseldorf. Yeah. So I just moved back to London and carried on working because by then I was doing a lot of production work with Grey. And I continued doing that for about another six years or ten mm. years, something like that. Mm. And what's so away from the advertising thing, yeah. you know, what, do you, what are your views on the world today as you see it? Like, do you think we're in a optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the planet? Mm. Sitting in Brexit land at the moment. Yeah, no, I meant... Trump land. Yeah, well, Trump, I think, is very dangerous. Brexit is a very bizarre situation to be in. I think, think, quite frankly, the vote should never have happened. You cannot have a a question of being in or out as a a yes-no when you have so many other things Mm. attached to it. Yeah. You have a very split country. Mm. I mean, some people genuinely wanted out of Europe because they didn't want the control that Europe is trying to do, which I would agree with. On the other hand, there's all sorts of other ramifications that I think a lot of the people who maybe voted on it were not aware of. And so you you have a very divided country now. What would you say before we go to a, a young Francesca who's just arrived in London at the age of 18 and sees a career in film or television or what advice would you pass back what wisdom have you garnered in your illustrious career Mm. I think the thing I learnt most when I was young from my father my father was was, and I were very close he was one of my best friends Um, we even shared a flat together and stuff so Uh, he was a very very interesting man did an awful lot of very interesting things his life is interesting my mother was a poet as well Mm. so all sorts of things there. Uh, what would I say, really? I suppose he he said, right, what we do is we draw a big circle. And then in that circle, you divide it into areas. And you 
work out the things you like and the things you don't like. And you said, right, when you found the things you like in that circle, you know, or what you're good at, that's where you go for. And what I learned, it was the complete opposite in the sense that, yes, there are things you like, but there's all sorts of everything else that is around are all possible, unless you've marked it as a don't like. Mm. Even so, things you don't know about. Even things you don't know about. Oh, even yeah. things you don't know about. Oh. I mean, I paint. I paint quite a bit. I've had exhibitions. Mm-hmm. I do that now. Well, I did it sort of throughout. Whereas I never wanted to be a painter, though I like silkscreen painting, screening and stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I think you've got to be very open to things happening and things happening by accident. And the questions you need to, to do, which I know children do, and I still do it, it's like, why? If somebody says you can't do this, you go, why? And then at the end, you'll often find there isn't a reason why you cannot do it. There may be mm. things that will limit what you can do, but there's no reason why you shouldn't try. Well, there is that thing, if you ask why enough times, you eventually stop asking why. You get to it. Yeah. Solution or but but that's why you know you find sometimes people say oh somebody will come into a business who's totally unaware of that business Mm. and everybody go well how can that person have that job they don't understand Mm. the product they don't understand the business they don't know what's going on but the beauty of that is that they also don't have the limitations that we automatically put up and go no you can't do that because Mm. yeah something great about not going naively at problems. You know, or innocently, they met the yeah. babies, you know, it's like... No, sometimes that can really work. But then I do think you need to have the people who do say th- that you cannot around you to sort of guide you through the maze. Mm-hmm. I don't know, go with the flow. I do think you should be nice to people on the way up kind. because I do think you're going to meet them <laughs> on the way down. And I also think some people in the business who are awful don't necessarily get their comeuppance. That's true, yeah. Unfortunately. You, you, karma doesn't often come no. out, yeah. That person is still at the top yes, of that company exactly. being a prick. <laughs> and, and I, yes, and I do find that a bit. Well, I hope it continues to go well for you, Francesca. Thank, Thank you, you very much for agreeing to have a glass of wine on a pint with Shawnee B on a Sunday afternoon in London. Look after yourself, and I'll see you next time. Bye, Sean. Ciao.